Well, dear congregation, I'd like to turn your very prayerful attention to 1 Kings chapter 5. We arrive in our week-by-week studies of God's Word here in 1 Kings chapter 5. Over the last few months, we've been going through 1 Kings. Prior to that, we finished up 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel before that. We continue to make our way through the Old Testament. In the last chapter, we saw the wise administration of King Solomon's reign. In chapter 4, we saw the great wisdom that God gave him in the establishing, the right establishing of a godly government. We saw godly and God-fearing men around him. Solomon, as we have seen before, is a type of Christ. Of course, he is not a perfect man, far be it, but he resembles Christ's kingdom in terms of his peaceful and his wise government. And remember, the Lord Jesus Christ is styled as the Prince of Peace, isn't he? And uh, his kingdom really brings in peace. And that's what we see here in 1 Kings chapter 5, how he can now build, because there is peace in the kingdom. Remember how he said, we've even read it in this chapter, how David was not able to build the temple because there was war on every front, nations around. And you can imagine if they were invading uh, marauding squads, attacking these stone hewers in the mountains. It would be a very arduous, be a very difficult task, wouldn't it, for David? But also David had much blood on his hands. Now, Solomon was a king of peace. David was a type of Christ in the sense that he was a conquering king. Remember, we've seen that. And how the Lord gave him rest from all of his enemies. But there were some final enemies that... Solomon had to deal with, and they were really enemies within, we should say, within the ranks of government, men such as Joab, who, although he didn't appear to be an enemy, but he very much undermined David in many respects, and there were others, of course, even his sons, David's sons. We think of the last son that was slain, Adam, well, it was terrible, wasn't it? The son before him, Absalom. And uh, now this last son that was slain, who wanted to be king, and, uh, well, he was also slain. And there were others, too, that were enemies. Well, we come to this chapter now, in chapter 5, and we continue to see the wisdom of Solomon. In chapter 3, we saw the wisdom of Solomon in terms of his understanding people, didn't we? We saw how he dealt with the two women who were arguing about the living child. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom, didn't he, as to who the real mother was. Well, in hindsight, we see it's quite common sense. But sometimes when we're put right on the spot, uh, well, we don't have much wisdom. But right there on the spot, Solomon was able to determine before the people who the real mother was. The mother that was the real mother of the child, her heart went out to the child. It wasn't as if the other woman didn't know who the child was. Well, she stole, she swapped the child in the middle of the night and took her child. Of course, this other woman woke up and said, this isn't my child. The other woman was lying And the Lord gave Solomon great wisdom, not only in terms of dealing with personal cases, but in the establishment of the nation. Wise 
in all of his ways. And how much more Christ. As we look at Solomon, we're seeing, as it were, a type of the greater than Solomon who was to come. Remember, as we saw, as Solomon was exalted much later on, or even when the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, came to see him, there was no more spirit left in her. She said, all that was told me, she said, only the half was told me, and how she marveled at the wisdom of Solomon. Now, this was a peaceful reign, and the people, remember, look at chapter 4, verse 25. It's a picture of peace. Israel was Mary and Judah, and we read there that every man sat under his fig tree and vine. That's uh, figurative language, although that may have been the case. There may have been many families and houses with fig trees and vines. It was a picture of peace. 1 Kings 4.25, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Bathsheba. That's across the breadth of the kingdom. All the days of Solomon. And although there was a levy, the people were taxed, there was an abundance for the people. It was a wise and gracious kingly rule, a reign of peace very much resembles Christ's people, doesn't it? God's people have peace now. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus, but Christ really gives us contentment. He saves us in this world and he puts in us a new heart, new desires, and our desires are to please him. We no longer hanker after the things of this world. And we, like Paul, can say whether uh, he was abounding or whether he was abased in the prison, He had learnt to be content in Christ. And as we said last week, this phrase, every man under his vine and fig tree, was synonymous and is synonymous in the Old Testament with the prophecy concerning Christ's kingdom, Zechariah 3.10. In that day, and speaks there of Christ, speaking of the Savior's reign, in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. That is, the Christian will have contentment in this life. You know, we don't need big mansions and uh, things here on earth. And Christ does provide. And whether we have much or little, we're still content. might be a, a little fig tree. It might be a small vine that God has given us. But he has provided. And... Uh, How blessed are God's people. We're told in Psalm 146, verse 5, Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, and whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever. And the Lord Lord has promised us, hasn't he? We sometimes sing it in the psalm. He will give grace and glory, will he not? And those who walk uprightly, shall lack no good thing. The young lions may lack, but they that fear the Lord shall lack no good thing. Well, Solomon was a king of peace, a king of wisdom. How much more the Lord Jesus? Eternally, he is going to give us eternal peace, isn't he? And one day, our minds and our bodies will be perfected. Even now, although the outward man is perishing, 
The inward man is being renewed day by day. You can look back in your life as a Christian, you think how the Lord has renewed my mind. Every time I come to his word, I'm learning, I'm growing in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We said also that in 1 Kings chapter 4, how we saw it, how the nations came around and they, they marveled at the wisdom of Solomon and they, they desired what the people of Israel had. Israel had become the desire of the nations and even Solomon's wisdom. The leaders of other countries and nations desired his wisdom. As we said last week, how much more Christ. In fact, one of the titles of Christ, he is styled as the desire of nations. We saw in Haggai chapter 2 verse 7, and I will make all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. That's Jesus Christ. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Christ, we have to say, even today, is he not the desire of all nations? Do not many from all different kindreds, tribes and tongues and nations desire Christ? Many have come to know him and to love him. And it's not so much what God has given us in terms of material things. We may have little in this life, but when an unbeliever sees you, they say, I want what he has. They have something different, something far more than what the world offers. They have contentment. Look at them. They have Christ. They have peace. Christ really is the desire of all nations. We saw there how Judah and Israel were merry. Now the nations came and they were just blessed as they saw this king ruling and the people were happy. Well, Christ is made unto us, 1 Corinthians 1.30, of him ye are in Christ, says the Apostle Paul, of whom God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is all those things to us, five of them, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He gives you wisdom in this life. He gives you his righteousness. So we're not trying to work up a righteousness, although there is righteousness worked out in the Christian's life, and sanctification. You live a sanctified life. Why? Because Christ's Spirit lives in you, and redemption. He not only redeems us from the curse of the law, but he redeems us to a new life. That's the Christian. Again, reflecting on Solomon, when the Queen of the South came, we're told in chapter 10, notice there, chapter 10, verse 5, there was no more spirit in her. She says, it was a true report that I heard in mine own land of the acts of thy wisdom. And she said, happy are the men, happy are these thy servants, and so on. How much more Christ and his people. Well, now we come to chapter 5. And from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 9, the scriptures will be taken up with not only the building of the temple, but the dedication of it. There's quite a large section here. Really, chapter 5 and chapter 6 will deal with the building, but a large part of the portion of First Kings here, from chapter 6 to 9, will be taken up with the dedication of it. The temple took seven years to build. Solomon's house, he took longer to build, but seven years here 
to build. If you notice in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, right at the end there, it says, So was he seven years in building it. Long time. It was on a grand scale, grander than the tabernacle that was moved from place to place. And as we come to this chapter, we find as Solomon builds it, there's so much to learn in this chapter of the Lord's provision, this providential provision. There's God's power. And it speaks, doesn't it, not to, to us today. The, remember, the Lord Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Ultimately, while Solomon builds here, the Lord is behind it all. I trust that you'll see that with me this morning. There are a number of things to glean from this passage. And the first thing we need to notice is, yes, it is the Lord's temple, but it is being done for the glory and for the honor of God. It's not done for the glory of Solomon. And it's uh, to be a place worthy of praise, worthy of the presence of the Lord. At this particular time, remember in, you may wish to just turn, Second Chronicles chapter 1, verse 3. It's always helpful to go to the book of Chronicles because there are some other little bits of information that are often found there that help us in our understanding of things that are going on. Right now, the uh, tabernacle is in a place called Gibeon. And remember there, there is a high place where Solomon goes to worship, and that's wrong. Uh, and we're told that in First Kings chapter 3 earlier, that that's what he did. And uh, offering up in the high place was wrong, although the tabernacle was there. The altar as we will see, is in Jerusalem. But just there, Second Chronicles 1, verse 3. So Solomon and all the congregation with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon. For there was the tabernacle of the congregation of God. So think of it, this tabernacle that had been constructed for many, many years now. Remember the tabernacle was 369 years in Shiloh. Prior to that, um, it was with Joshua and so on. But now we're told, so the tabernacle there is in Gibeon, where the high place is. But if you turn to 1 Kings 3, verse 15, you notice that the ark was in Jerusalem. And this was wrong. The two things really ought to be together. It was always meant to be in the holy of holy places. 1 Kings three fifteen, And Solomon awoke... And behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. So the ark was in Jerusalem, and uh, the tabernacle was in Gibeon. As I said, these two things should have been together. And uh, we said the tabernacle was in Shiloh from the days of Joshua for 369 years. Uh, well, even prior to that. Uh, they came out of the wilderness, didn't they? Remember how it was constructed there, we're told in Exodus. And uh, all through the period of the judges, uh, the ark was in the tabernacle. So for some 466 years now, if you combine all the years, 
and do your study on this from the time that Joshua and uh, the people came into the land. It's some 466 years. And now from some period of years, the, the, the ark is, or, or rather the tabernacle is at Gibeon. So it's been a long time now that the tabernacle has been in use. But sadly, as we said, the ark is separate from it, and this is not right. Now, the ark represented, did it not, the very presence of God? And any man that touched the ark would have been slain. We saw that incident with Uzzah. Remember how he touched the ark and he was slain immediately. He tried to study the ark. It was carried on a new cart, and that was for bad. It should have been carried by the staves through the golden islets. And that man was slain, and it should have been in the Holy of Holies. And now the tabernacle is going to really come to an end because the temple is going to be built. So for some 466 years, uh, it would have been in this tabernacle, this tent of moving. Now you notice, if you turn to Second Chronicles 7 and verse 1, Remember how when, as you're turning there, Moses dedicated the tabernacle, the glory of God came upon the Ark of the Covenant. And you notice in Second Chronicles 7, 1, now when Solomon had made an end of praying, that is at the dedication of the temple, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The Shekinah glory came again. And it's been so long now, isn't it? Hundreds of years, literally, since the glory of God appeared. And uh, indeed, the temple is to be a worthy place and was a worthy place where the ark was to be housed and glory would be ascribed to God. The Holy of Holies. There was no window in the Holy of Holies because it it pictures heaven. And uh, Christ is the light of heaven. Priests could only go in there once a year with the sprinkled blood of the Lamb. He would sprinkle the ark seven times and uh, present the blood on behalf of the people. So this is a tremendous thing now. Just giving you this little bit of background history. 466 years now has been the tabernacle. Now there's going to be the grand temple. On a much grander scale and on a permanent scale, on a permanent, in a permanent way, should we say, it'll be built. We will see that there are well over 150,000 men working on the temple, as we read here. There are 70,000 men hewing, there are 80,000 hewing, sorry, 70,000 carrying stones. A tremendous feet, and all for the glory of God. Now, let's just think for a moment. We know this from our previous studies in Exodus and also in the book of Numbers, that the tabernacle and the temple are teaching aids, aren't they? They teach us of Christ. That's really what, when you understand, through the book of Exodus, we just talked about the ark, Uh, We think of the golden laver, we think of the golden candlestick, all of these things, the showbread, all these things 
are what the Apostle Paul says in Hebrews 10, pictures of the true, shadows of good things to come, the things that speak of Christ. That ceremonial law, Paul tells us that the law was the tutor to bring us to Christ. Not just the Ten Commandments, okay? But the ceremonial law is the tutor, is the teaching aid to bring sinners to Christ, to make them to see that God is holy. You could not go into that most holy of holy place without a perfect spotless lamb. And the priest, no doubt, went in with great fear and trepidation. Is this blood pure? Is this a spotless lamb? Something else I want to just say that God doesn't need a temple. Now I say that very, very carefully because Stephen, if you turn to Acts chapter 7 and verse 44, what Stephen says, it's not that God needs anything. God has made heaven and earth, hasn't he? He's made all things. And uh, in Acts 7 verse 44, we read Stephen, he's standing before the Jewish council and he is soon going to be put to death. And he gives a great defense of the apostles and Christ, the Messiah who was to come and who did come. And he says this to the leaders, Acts 7.44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus. And by the way, if you look there, it says Jesus, Joshua. Uh, In the original, of course, Jesus is short for Joshua. So it says Jesus there. So some some of you might be a little bit confused. So verse 45, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus or Joshua into the possession of the Gentiles. That's when Joshua came in, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him an house. Howbeit the Most High, notice this, exactly what I've been saying, howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. He's quoting here from Isaiah. Heaven is my throne, says the Lord, and earth is my footstool. What house will he build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? So essentially, the tabernacle or the temple is not so much, could somebody just close that curtain? Could not so much, it's not so much for for us, for God. God doesn't need, as Stephen tells us there, thank you. Stephen does not, tells us that God doesn't need a temple. Do you notice that there in verse 46 and verse 47? God doesn't need. God says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me? It's not that God needs a place. Because God is omnipresent, isn't he? Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool and so on. But these things are for us uh, that we might worship God aright, that we might understand him, that we might learn of him, and that this might heighten our worship 
It's, it's more for our benefit, isn't it? It's not that God needs anything at all, as Stephen says. Now, it's very clear from the Scriptures that God had shown David the place of the building. Remember, we saw that it was on the threshing floor of Arana or Ornan. If you just turn back there to First Chronicles 21, we're told there that's where David uh, bought the threshing floor from Onan uh, for 600 shekels of gold by weight and so on. And remember how he offered up the sacrifices and God stayed the plague that was upon Israel, remember? And uh, there was a great plague because David had numbered the people and uh, the people had sinned against God as well. I won't waste our time with that. But if you notice, as you come to chapter 22, verse 1, at that very place, following on from chapter 21, David says, This is the house of the Lord, and this is the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. It was right there at the threshing floor of Onam, wasn't it? Right in Jerusalem, where David bought this uh, threshing floor, and he offered sacrifice. This is the very place God had made very clear to David, this is where the temple should build. And we're told there, if you notice in verse 5 of chapter 22, 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 5, And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender, and the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnificent." of fame and of glory throughout all countries, I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. So David, of course, started to prepare. And we know that King Hiram was a friend of David, remember? And it was King Hiram that supplied all the cedar trees for David's house. We've seen that earlier in Second uh, Samuel and this all, of course, has been providentially arranged by God. The very place is determined by God. Solomon didn't need to scratch his head and even ask God because God had determined and David already started to make preparation as to where the tabernacle or the temple would be built. It's all given by God. And it was to be a permanent and worthy place of worship. Now, Surely it is the desire of God's people, isn't it, that they should reverence him aright and that we would want to be with God. As we said, Stephen said, God doesn't need a tabernacle. God doesn't, because can, can anybody contain God? He is omnipresent, but God is pleased to dwell with his people in an especial way. And we see there how the glory of God came down. But it's a picture of one, what we shall have one day with God. We shall be with him as his people. Remember how David said in the Psalm 23, you know that Psalm 23 very well, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He restoreth my soul. And then he comes and he says at the end of that Psalm, verse 6, surely Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then David closes that wonderful Psalm 23 with, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That surely is the desire of God's people. And when we come to a place like this 
to worship God. We want to reverence him, don't we? His name is holy. His name is reverent. And we want to give him worship. What is worship? Think of the word worship. It's where we get the word. It comes from worthyship. You're giving God the glory. We're reverencing him. And the tabernacle was to be worthy of God. Worthy of a God. We read in Revelation 21.3, it's just a foreshadowing. There is going to be a tabernacling with God forever. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. That's going to be one day. And you know, if you are the Lord's, you love him, and you want to give him honor, don't you? You want to praise him. The word tabernacle means to dwell. And Paul speaks of our bodies as tabernacles. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.1, he says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, speaking about our bodies, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And that's what we long for, don't we? But the place of worship here below, let me say this, should not never make us devalue the things that are above. Just because we go to a place to worship here or wherever it might be, it, it should not make us devalue the things above. It should enhance that anticipation of God's glorious and holy presence. The place that we worship in should really heighten it, shouldn't it? Should really heighten our anticipation of God's presence. So what should the place be like? Well, we worship God in spirit and in truth. We no longer need the teaching aid because Christ is the teaching aid, isn't he? We see Christ. What they saw in in the tabernacle, they saw the Holy of Holies, they saw the sacrifice. All of those things were saying sinners cannot be made right with the blood of bulls and goats. These things cannot take away sin. God is holy. But now Christ has been offered up. It'd be blasphemous, wouldn't it, to go back to sacrifices. Those things are past, and we worship the unseen Christ for what he's done for us as believers. Surely that's what we worship. But the place still ought to be reverent, shouldn't it? It should still be becoming of reverence. You know, when we worship the Lord, God says, Psalm 89, verse 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. When you come to worship here on the Lord's Day, is your heart quiet? Are you ready to listen to God's word? It's it's a good idea before the service just to spend five minutes in silence and read the Bible instead of talking about what you've done all week. To the person next to you, read your Bible, think on God. Don't just swan in his presence as if 
you know, he's just one of your friends. But God is holy, my friends. High in the heavens. We ought to come when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord in the temple. What was his attitude? He said, woe is me, for I am an unclean man. Is that how we come? Do we have that kind of... God will never speak to you, friend, if we come with irreverence into his house. It might be a hall here, but it's, it's God's presence and God is to be had in reverence as we come into his house, as we worship him. It's no different. The Lord Jesus said that his people worship him in spirit and in truth, but is our spirit right? Have our hearts been changed? Have we been touched? Reverence is what God requires. As we come into the house of God, we ought to reflect on how we've lived, confess our sins. We're told in Ecclesiastes, aren't we, chapter 5, when we come into the house of God, we are not to offer the sacrifice of fools who are heard by their many words, but rather come to, to hear what God has to say. Well, friends, it's so important that our attitude is right. Place needs to be right, and but it all ought to tend toward this attitude. God is glorious, high in the heavens, majestic. Do we treat him as that? Well, notice, as we come to this temple here, all the materials... Provisions of, in fact, provided by God in providence. Think of this man, Hiram. We're told here that he, he loved David very much. Now, there is nothing in Scripture, and I've studied and looked at all the good commentators, nothing to suggest that Hiram was a regenerate man. He was a man who had an alliance with David. And let me say this, there are many who... Take kindly to Christians. And God can work even so in unregenerate hearts so that they, they think favorably and they act favorably toward God's people. You see, this is all part of God's doing, isn't it? God can and does move in the hearts of the unsaved. Uh, we'll look at a couple of examples of that. Not just this man Hiram. But here... We read how Hiram, he hears about Solomon and he sends a, the servants to Solomon. He sort of congratulates him and on him being king or gives honor to him. Verse 1, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants unto Solomon, for he had heard that they had anointed him king in the room of his father. For Hiram was ever a lover of David. He had a good friend. Uh, he appreciated David. Now this is true. In our lives as Christians, there, there will be people who are not Christians who might admire us. This is very common. There's so much even still in man that, that he, he knows. I'm thinking of Romans chapter 2. He approves of the things that are good, even in the believer. So many people agree with us on many moral issues who are, who are not saved. 
And that's encouraging. And uh, we say it's only, I don't like to use the word common grace, it's the common operations of the Spirit at work in this world. I don't believe grace is common, but there are operations of the Spirit in unregenerate men. And as I said, there's nothing to suggest here, nothing certain as to the fact that this king worshipped the true and the living God. But notice how Solomon unashamedly testifies to him and to the servants of the Lord's gracious dealings and his mercy upon his father. David, verse 3, Thou knowest how that David my father could not build an house unto the name of the Lord his God for the wars which were about him on every side, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. Now it's interesting, he doesn't change his speech for the unsaved, neither should we. There are lots of opportunities, my dear friends, that we can speak of the Lord to the unsaved. We can, we can and should speak of the Lord freely. How the Lord's helped us. How the Lord's blessed us. How the Lord has encouraged us. And this is how he speaks here to Hiram, this king. He testifies here how God gave victory to David, and now he is able to build. He gives glory to God for the triumph, doesn't he? And uh, in the same way, we read here how until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. This reminds us of Christ. Christ will build his church, won't he? Aren't we told in Psalm 110, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Well, the Lord will build his church, and the Father will give the victory to Christ. Will he not? It's uh, peace unto victory and so on. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, For he must reign, that's Christ, till he hath put all enemies under his feet. He is building his church now, just as Solomon is. So we, like David and Solomon, shall triumph in Christ. Something else you notice in verse 5, Solomon believed the promise that God had made to David. Verse 5, And behold, I purpose to build an house unto the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spake unto David my father, saying, My son, whom I will set upon thy throne in thy room, he shall build an house unto my name. You see, he believed that promise in uh, 2 Samuel seven twelve, But also that promise is found in 1 Corinthians 28, verse 6. David speaking there said, And he said unto me, Solomon, thy son, shall build my house and my courts, and so on. Solomon believed those promises. And you, you see, the father promised the son, didn't he? Jesus Christ the same. In fact, if you turn to Zechariah, and this is interesting, you see here Hiram as a Gentile, and he's helping Solomon, isn't he? But I want you to notice a striking parallel with Christ, who is styled as the branch, isn't he? The branch of Jesse, Zechariah 6.12. Zechariah 6.12 And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Now, there should be no question as to who the branch is. We should know who the branch is. 
The branch is the Lord Jesus. And it's all there in capital letters for us. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall, notice, build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, so king and a priest. And the council of peace shall be between them both, and the crowns shall be to Halem and Tobiah and Jediah and to Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And you come down, come down to verse 15. And they that are afar off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord, and ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. There's a picture there, isn't there? See, the Gentiles, those from afar off, shall come and shall be engaged in the work of the Lord. Even the Gentiles. Just the same here. And you notice how the, there are the servants of Hiram and the servants of Solomon. They're working together. This is all a picture of the, the great king that was to come, who would have a people out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a picture there in Zechariah, speaking of Christ, the branch, who will be a king and a priest, and it will have workers coming from afar off. This was unthinkable for the Jew. But you know, of course, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, is there? For all are one in him. And he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Hiram, this king, was provided in providence. And in many ways, you know, friends, we are to look to God to provide for this church and for ourselves in providence. God is no man's debtor, is he? He will provide. And uh, he will even use the ungodly. It, was the, it would be even in the days, when I say the ungodly, the unregenerate, the unsaved, man like Hiram. I'll give you another example. In the days of Nehemiah, you know, when... Jerusalem lay in ruins, and uh, Nehemiah was a Jew born in Persia during the exile, and he was the cupbearer to Persia's king, Artaxerxes. And uh, well, he, the king saw him distressed, and the king said, what's, what's wrong? And uh, well, Nehemiah said, my people, and Jerusalem lays in ruins. And the king said, well, what do you need? What can I do for you? And he gave him all the provision. We're told there in Nehemiah chapter 2 and uh, the verse 8 we read, And a letter unto Asaph the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams of the gates and the palace which appertain to the house for the whole wall of the city and for the house that I shall enter into it. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Isn't that amazing? God moved that king's heart, and God moved Hiram's heart. Are we not told in the Psalms and in the Proverbs that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord? Proverbs 21.1. Does the Lord not move it whithersoever way he will? Friend, we have a great need. We have a need of our own place. And we long that the Lord will provide something. But, you know, 
the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And he is able to move in the hearts even of those who are not saved. It happened in Daniel's day, remember. We, we read of how Daniel there was brought into tender love with the prince of the eunuchs, Daniel 1.9. How was that? God favored him. And da- Daniel came to second in command in the land. It was all of God. Well, this is amazing. God, through his common operations, is doing this. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. Even Cyrus, when the people were released, weren't they, from Babylonian captivity. The decree of Cyrus was even spoken of in Isaiah 45 and verse 1. And the Lord says in Isaiah 46, My counsel shall stand, I shall do all my good pleasure, calling even a ravenous bird from the east and a king to issue my decree. And that's exactly what Cyrus did. And here again, God can even move the ungodly to approve the things which are excellent and they might see something in us and cause them to favor God's people. And God's people would be blessed. Well, we are very thankful that God is overall, isn't he? You can see how the Lord is building his church here, building the tabernacle. Now, this is tremendous. Look at all, very briefly, the arrangements of the materials in exchange for Hiram's household. We see that in verse 6 to the verse 9. And then you see a great provision for Hiram's own household, all this wheat and so on. Verse 6, Therefore command thou that they hew me cedar trees. Hiram agrees to all of this. He sees this. He's excited at this prospect and wants to help. And uh, everything is appointed. The men agree and... uh, A covenant is cut, verse 12. They make a lead together. The word here for covenant is the word bereath. And uh, it's actually, it means cut. And so the idea would be that usually, and this is where we get our terminology from, from Scripture, is that normally when men made a covenant or they cut a lead together, animals were divided. Now we don't know if that was done in this particular case, but there was a league made together. and We want to come back to that. Now, why? Well, first of all, men make agreements because, we have to be honest, men can't be trusted. And so much is at stake here, isn't there? Look at all the materials. Look at all that's being provided here. Solomon, he sends for all these labors. The men cut trees. Verse 13, And King Solomon raised a levy out of all of Israel, It's not money, but the levy was 30,000 men. And uh, they were sent in bands of 10,000. 10,000 at a time went out. That's a lot. And then two months, they came back. Then the other group of men went out and so on. So these are just men working in Lebanon two months at a time, hewing down trees, and Adoniram was over the levy. So it was a levy not of money, but of men. And you can see the wisdom in this cycle, so that the men are not deprived of their families and so on. But notice something else. The king commanded that they brought stones, verse 17, costly stones and huge stones to lay the foundation of the house. How many of them? Well, we were told, verse 15, 
threescore and ten thousand. That's seventy thousand carried stones. Seventy thousand men carried stones. And then eighty thousand cut the stones in the mountains. That's over 150,000 men, my friends. This is some project, isn't it? Tremendous. Verse 15. Four score thousand hewers in the mountains. It's 80,000 and so on. Now I want to come back to verse 12. This covenant was cut. Well, usually men make an agreement because, and you sign a document, you sign a covenant, don't you? Because men can't be trusted. Men uh, make a league together. As I said, the word is bereath. And uh, the word is derived from the dividing of a sacrifice. Now, we don't know if this actually took place. They may well have done that. Now, literally, this was what was being said when the animal sacrifices, what we call the Chaldean covenant, going back to the days of Abraham. If you just turn for a moment, I want to close with this. To Genesis 15, and you know this occasion where God had made a covenant with Abraham. Now, it was what we call a unilateral covenant, not a bilateral covenant. This covenant that is made here with Hiram and Solomon um, was bilateral. So both parties were saying, look, if you don't honor the agreement, this is what will happen to you, and so on. But God, when he made a covenant with Abraham, it was a unilateral covenant. That means it was conditioned upon one person. It was not conditioned upon Abraham, okay? Because this is a covenant of grace. When we think of grace, grace is not conditioned upon the sinner, but upon the Savior, but upon God who saves. Genesis 15 verse 7 And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of the Ur of Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord, whereby or how shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took them all these and divided them in the midst. In other words, the, the animals were divided. And ordinarily the parties went through the midst of the divided animals. In other words, if you didn't um, carry out your terms of the agreement, this is what would happen to you. But we notice, you come down to the verse 17, and it came to pass that when the sun went down, that it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. And we notice that Abraham fell into a deep sleep. And it was God that passed through the midst, the burning furnace. And so what the Lord is saying here, Abraham, this is dependent on me, not you. It was a unilateral covenant. And uh, the same with David. Remember David's dying words. David said, although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. It's the same covenant, but it was renewed to David, that God was going to put on David's throne an everlasting king, the king of kings, the one who would build his temple. 
So this covenant with Abraham and with David is on the grounds of God's mercy. Abraham, I'm going to bless thee. I'm going to give thee a seed as large as the seashore, a people. But it would come through a seed, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. You see, God blesses his people. In terms of this covenant here that we see with these men, they had to, I suppose, honor each other. But at the end of the day, God was providing everything, wasn't he? He, was pro- he provided the place. He provided Hiram. He even moved in Hiram's heart. The place was provided. And by the way, this is the same place where Abraham offered his son Isaac on the altar. The great one to come, Jesus Christ, though, was not spared. Isaac was spared. But God did not spare his son, Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ lay down his life for his people. And he builds his church on the grounds of mercy, doesn't he? On the grounds... And who did God swear by in that covenant? Well, we're told in Hebrews 6, verse 13... For when God made promise to Abraham, Genesis 2, 12, and also Genesis 15, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. God never said to Abraham, If you're a good boy, Abraham, it's all going to work out. But he said, I will bless. Isn't that wonderful? The temple, you see, is going to be destroyed one day. That's what Jesus said. But I will raise it in three days. And he spoke of his body. The teaching aid was gone. He is the lamb. And it's him we worship. It is him one day we will see. Our eyes of faith will one day see him. And that's why when we come here, we come with thankfulness, quietness in our hearts, ready to receive God's word, ready to praise him. And not just when we hear, but when we go. We leave as people that truly have been touched by the truth that God gave his only begotten son to give his life as a ransom for us. When the fullness of time was come, Paul says, God sent his son, born of a woman, made under the law, to redeem us. And that's what he's done. And you know, this covenant will be completed. And the proof, if we are a Christian, we will be glorified. Because the scriptures say, being confident of this very thing, he that has begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. If God has changed your heart, you will be glorified with Christ one day. If you are being sanctified, think of it. God not only brought these two men together, but God saw to it that this would be a peaceful kingdom. The tabernacle would be built 
or the, the temple would be built, and ultimately God's Shekinah glory will come again in that temple. We read on the day that indeed Solomon consecrated the temple and dedicated it to the Lord, that his glory came. But friends, how much more Christ? When we see Christ and we enter into his glorious presence, you know, there was Stephen being stoned. And he was speaking just a few moments before to the Jews who were gnashing their teeth at him, telling them that God doesn't need an earthly temple. God doesn't need anything. It was a place worthy of him, and any place of meeting is worthy of God. But the one we should worship is his son, who is the fulfillment of the temple. And whenever we come into his presence, we need to honor him. That's how the early church were. We read in Acts 2 how they that gladly received the word were baptized and that same day were added to them about 3,000 souls. And we read they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and teaching. They loved to hear the word of God and they were added to the church and they, they came under real authority. Acts 2 is the blueprint of the New Testament church. And how they met was in simplicity and truth. They heard the word of God and they praised God for all that Jesus Christ has done for us. And one day we'll be with him. Paul says in Ephesians 2, concerning God's people, he says, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, that's of the building of the church, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Now that's what I want to ask and close with this morning. Are you part of that holy temple? Are you part of God's building? Peter says we are living stones coming unto Jesus Christ. What's our hope for heaven? Have we come to Christ, believing by faith in his finished work, trusting in his righteousness alone, to stand before Almighty God. Jesus could say, concerning Abraham our father, he saw my day and was glad. Have you believed upon Christ? Have you repented of your sins? If you have, you'll be part of that church and you will join yourself with God's people. Paul describes as a building fitly framed together for the glory of Jesus Christ. Are we living stones? Or are we dead stones? Look at all these magnificent stones that have been cut out, hewn out. All the workers. My dear friends, every one of us ought to be living stones and to the glory of Jesus Christ. We're not our own, are we? But we are the Lord's. May we serve him with gladness of heart and joy. Amen.